All right, we uh, return to our afternoon uh, teaching series, uh, our catechetical series, as we are following through this document, one of our confessional standards called the Heidelberg Catechism, and we are focusing on the last sermon in a mini-series of sermons on this document on um, the importance and the celebration of the Lord's Supper. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to first of all read from Matthew chapter 22, and then um, we're going to read from question and answer 81 and 82. Now, in, in the series um, up to this point, we've looked at a number of things in connection with the Lord's Supper, the importance of the Lord's Supper, the institution of the Lord's Supper by Jesus. It's one of two sacraments that he instituted, that he put into place. Um, we have um, looked at also the, uh, a comparison contrast for you here last um, uh, Sunday afternoon. I know that it was a... Uh, it was a kind of a long, was it a long weekend? Yeah, it was a long weekend. And we, we looked at, I think it's kind of an interesting study on the difference between the Lord's Supper and the Roman Catholic Mass. So we explained the Mass, we explained the Lord's Supper in comparison to that. And hopefully through that, it was not just kind of an inductive study of some kind, but what it was is it was something to help us to gain a greater understanding of the gospel, of what makes the good news, the good news of Jesus Christ. And now we're going to be taking a look at who has access to the table. Who should come to the Lord's table? Not just who may, who should come, and who should celebrate that Lord's Supper as in, in remembrance of what Jesus has done on the cross for our salvation. We're going to consider that this afternoon. So I want to first read, if you have your Bibles, um, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 22, and I'm going to begin reading at verse 1, where we find a teaching of Jesus in connection with a wedding feast. So again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they wouldn't come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in and looked at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding and garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. So I'm going to get into a bit of an explanation of, of this passage, and I might provide just a few extra details from also the Gospel, Luke, who records the story as well and provides um, some other details that Matthew does not hear. All right, I want to draw your attention now to uh, the Heidelberg Catechism. Can we put that on the screen, please? There we go. And um, I want to draw your attention to question answers 81 and uh, 82 as regards who has access to the table. So the question is this, who are to come to the table of the Lord? And let's say together, those who are truly displeased with themselves because of their sins and yet trust that these are forgiven them. Are we saying this together? 
That's 82. Where's 81? Do we have 81? Okay. All right. This is pathway. That means everything is imperfect. That's all right. Okay, then, then you need to just to listen. Okay, but we can say 81, we can, 80, we can do 82 together, right? So here's 81. Who are to come to the table? <laughs> I was wondering, what was going on? Do you just not believe this? I, okay, so <laughs> who are to come to the table of the Lord? Here's the answer. Those who are truly displeased with themselves because of their sins and yet trust that they are forgiven them and that their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ and who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and amend their life. And hypocrites and those who do not repent and eat and drink judgment upon themselves. And then question 82, are those also to be admitted to the Lord's Supper who by their confession and life show that they are unbelieving and ungodly? Now let's say together. No, for then the covenant of God would be profaned and his wrath kindled against the whole congregation. Therefore, according to the command of Christ and his apostles, the Christian church is duty-bound to exclude such persons by the keys of the kingdom of heaven until they amend their lives. All right, so um, if you don't pay attention to this one, you have no excuse because you probably have enough sugar in your system right now to, you know, make you jittery or so. But anyway, it's, it's okay. You know, um, and I know we want to eat, and I know the kids are getting hungry. So what I want to do is I want to do two simple things this afternoon. Uh, we're in Matthew chapter 22. What I want to do is I want to get into that story. I'm going to retell the story for the sake of the kids, and I'm going to cover the basics of that story. Then I'm going to explain the story, and then I'm going to connect it to the whole question of access to the Lord's table. So here's Matthew chapter 22. Let's get right into it. Kids, I want you to listen up. Simple story. You have a story of a king, and a king who is planning to hold a wedding feast for his son. So kids, I don't know if you have um, uh, ever been to a wedding ceremony. You probably have, maybe not. But if you have, you remember that wedding ceremony, and then what happens after the wedding ceremony? Well, you have a wedding reception. Well, the feast is somewhat like that wedding reception. And so oftentimes what happens when couples get married, they send out invites to their friends and their acquaintances, just people that they know. Well, this is what the king did with this wedding feast or this wedding reception. He sent out a number of invites. And the invites went out to a number of people, maybe, who knows, the text doesn't say, but it sounds like a number of them, maybe 100, maybe 200, maybe more, because he is the king after all, and this is a big thing. So the invites go out, and those who receive the invites take a look at them, and then what the king does is he sends his servants, a number of servants, to these individuals who received these invites, and according to Matthew and also the Gospel of Luke, there's a number of different responses to those invites. Um, some of the responses are people just kind of ignore them. Other responses are the people just kind of uh, give excuses. I'm busy doing this, I'm busy doing that, sorry, I can't make it. Um, some, this is really interesting, some of those who are invited actually treat the servants of the king rather badly. They mistreat them and they actually kill a number of them. So that's a, that's a very, very serious thing. And when, when that happens, when the king discovers this, the king, as you can imagine, is extremely angry. So he sends a number of soldiers to these individuals, especially those who mistreat, who mistreated the servants and who killed them. The king orders these soldiers to kill them and to actually destroy their cities. So it's a wholesale judgment and condemnation. It's very severe. 
But you see, the wedding feast is still to be held, and now what is the king going to do? So the king says, okay, well, these people who I know, who I invited, they're not coming, and they've mistreated and killed some of my servants, so here's the thing. I'm just going to have my servants go out and invite anybody who wants to come. And so when you take a look at these two gospels together, what you find is the king basically is saying to the servants, I want you to go to the highways and byways. I want you to go to the alleyways. I want you to go wherever people can be found. And I want you to, basically, he says, I want you to invite the general public. I want you to invite the general public. And we read that a number of the general public, and it says this, both those who are good and bad, those who are moral outwardly and those who are immoral, they, they say, yeah, I'll go to the wedding feast. So they accept the invitation to the king, they come to the wedding feast. And so the day comes where you have this grand wedding feast and the impression is the king is walking around and he sees a number of people and they're all dressed to the nines because, well, this is a wedding feast. This is a grand wedding reception. But he sees one man in particular who's not properly dressed. And the, the king goes up to this man. Now, this is like a guy today who says, yeah, he's from the public. I'll go to the wedding feast, but he's somewhat clueless. And he comes, maybe he's done working out at the gym, and he comes with his shirt, and he comes with his shorts, and he comes in his Nikes, and he shows up. And all these other people are dressed to the nines. They get it, but this guy doesn't get it. So the king comes up to him, and he says, so why aren't you dressed for the occasion? Why aren't you in the proper wedding attire? And what does the story say? This guy doesn't know what to say. He says he's speechless. What is he going to say? So the king says... To his servant, he says, I want you to take this guy and I want you to cast him out. I want you to put him in, he says, I want you to put him in the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but actually few are chosen. And that's how the story ends. Now, when Jesus oftentimes uh, tells a parable, you know, it's, it's a basic story. It's filled with images, filled with various symbols. So the question then is begged, what do these symbols actually mean? What do these metaphors mean? What is this all pointing to? So here, again, kids, listen up. This is very simple. So many of the items here have symbolic value. That is, they point to something greater than themselves. So what you have is you have a wedding feast. And the wedding feast is representative of the kingdom of God and all the blessings, all the feasting, all the goodness that's associated with the kingdom of God. Right? So... um, this is, this is all the, 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 the wedding feast represents all the blessings of the king and the kingdom. The blessings of those who belong to the king, those who know the king, and those who desire the blessings of that kingdom that are there for them. So the wedding feast is the blessings of the kingdom of God. Well, the king, what do you suppose the king is? The king is God. Who is the king's son? Well, you can probably imagine that's Jesus Christ. So the king represents God, the Father. You have his son, Jesus Christ. And then you have the invitation, the invitation to come to the wedding feast. And this is the invitation that God gives to his people at this time, the Jewish people. And this is God's invitation always to his people to enter into and experience all the blessings of the kingdom. Because you have, you, have, you have God's people, generally speaking, and then you have those who are truly God's people. And oftentimes theologians talk about this as, as um, both in, but also of the covenant. And sometimes what happens is that you can be in covenant, you can be in marriage with the Lord, you can have this relationship with the Lord. Those are in the covenant through repentance and faith, but sometimes people are not of the covenant. 
In other words, they're counted among the people of God, but they're not living like it. They're not living lives of faith and obedience. And you see this in the Old Covenant. You see this in the Old Testament. And you also see this during the days of Jesus. There are many Jews who said, yeah, I'm a child of God. I'm a, I'm a child of the, of the covenant, and this is a great privilege for me, but they weren't living like it. So they were in the covenant, but they were not actually of the covenant. Well, this invite goes out to all the Jews, but those who are not of the covenant don't respond to that. And again, we see this throughout the Old Testament, and we see this in the New Testament as well. They turn their backs on it, and worse still, what they do is they kill the servants, in other words, the prophets of the king who are sent to them to call them to repentance and faith. Some ignore them, like the invitees of our passage. Some turn their backs on them. And some actually kill the prophets. They mistreat them and they kill them. Actually, that's what they ultimately did to God's son, Jesus Christ. Well, this is the response that the king, this is the response that the Lord gets. And what we, if you know anything about the Bible, you know that many, many of God's covenant people rejected him, turned the backs on him, and ultimately rejected Jesus Christ. So what did God do? God sent out the invitation, the sincere summons to those who are non-Jews. We call them Gentiles. And God sends out this invitation to the general public, and he says, the wedding feast is at hand. Come to the wedding feast. And what we find throughout redemptive history, and we see this especially in the book of Acts, that there are a number of people among the general public who hear the gospel, who hear the good news of Jesus, and they don't turn their backs on God like God's people, but they actually turn to the Lord and they embrace it in repentance and faith. All right, just about done here with the story. Now, what do you do with that guy who comes to the wedding feast who's not in the right clothes? This man is a representative of all those who... Say, yeah, I'll accept the invitation of the king. Yes, I would like the blessing of knowing the king and belonging to the king, and I would like the blessings of all the kingdom of God, namely forgiveness and peace of mind and reconciliation with God and all of that. There are many people like that today. But they basically want the kingdom on their terms. God holds out to them peace and tranquility and joy and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Indeed, eternal life. He holds that all out to them. And they go, yeah, I would like that. But I want that kingdom on my terms. I don't want to repent. I don't want to believe. And I don't want to surrender to Jesus. But I would like the blessings nonetheless. This is what that man represents. So what does God do with individuals like that? He doesn't give them the blessings of the kingdom. Rather, what he does is he pronounces curses or judgment on them. It's not like he says, oh, well, you didn't accept the blessings of the kingdom. That's really unfortunate, you know, and God puts his head down, and he's just kind of grieved over that. He is grieved. But that's also deserving of judgment. And that's a reality, too. That's a reality, too. Okay. So that's the story, it's the explanation of the story. You, you hear that story and you kind of go, okay, what does this have to do with the Lord's Supper? And particularly, what does this have to do with those who have access to the Lord's Supper? Those who have access to the Lord's Supper, as we learn from this passage and elsewhere in the Bible, are those who receive the invitation, those who accept the uh, invitation, and those who wear the right clothes. You've got to wear the right clothes. What are those right clothes? What are those right clothes? The right clothes that one must have to come to Jesus 
and to experience the blessings of the kingdom and have access to the table are these things. Repentance, faith, surrender to Jesus, and ultimately, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I mean, you go, what do you, what do you mean by the righteousness of Jesus Christ? Listen, we all need the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter who you are. We're all in need of the righteousness of Jesus. What is that? Listen carefully. The Bible tells us that, that um, we are all sinners and we all fall short of the glory of God. We all break the commands of God. We all grieve the spirit of God by nature. God says, I want you to live this way and I want you to believe this way and our natural disposition is to do exactly the opposite. This is why we need a so-called righteousness outside of ourselves. So when we're talking about righteousness, we're talking about conformity to the will of God. We cannot do that on our own. We fall short of the glory of God time and time again. So God holds out to us a righteousness that must come from outside of us, what Martin Luther called an alien righteousness. It's a righteousness that is outside of us that can only be found in Jesus Christ. So while we break the laws of God and we grave the Spirit every day, Jesus never did. He fulfilled every aspect of the law and the will of God and gave his heart to God, not just most of the time, all of the time, in perfection. He has the perfection and he has the righteousness that we so need. And the Bible teaches us that that righteousness and that perfection, that moral perfection of Christ, it becomes our own and actually covers us like a glorious robe when we come to the end of ourselves and we entrust ourselves to Jesus Christ and we believe in him and we believe in him alone. There's no working your way to God, man. There's no working your way. You've got to entrust yourself to Christ and take hold of his righteousness that is offered to you, again, by faith and faith alone. The prophet Isaiah describes this robe of righteousness in beautiful terms. If you put that PowerPoint on, if you would, from the book of Isaiah. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord, he writes. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. God has this robe of righteousness in his possession, and it's this robe of righteousness that we also desperately need. And God gives that all to those who entrust themselves to Jesus Christ. So, who are those who come to Christ? Who are those who receive the blessings of the kingdom and who have access to the table? Those who wear the right clothes. Those who are clothed in the robes of righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. Listen, my friends, this is why what we do is when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, what we do is we, well, it's not this table, but we have a, a clear kind of pretty table, and then we have all number of things on there, including the bread and the wine. And what we do is we place actually a fence around this table. We just don't say, okay, you know, you're all here and uh, as members and also as guests, and no matter where you're at with God, it doesn't really matter. We want to be hospitable people, so just come to the table. Just, just come and join us. That's not what we do. Because when we look at the Bible, what we do see is that there is, a, there is a fence that the Lord puts around the table, which the question is, who may pass through that fence and have access to the table, right? And it's those who wear the right clothes. This is why you'll notice, if you've ever worshipped here before, three warnings are actually given. Three. I don't know if you ever thought about it. But we have one that's before the worship service, 
And then we have another one in the Lord's Supper form itself that we read. And then also a warning and a call to repentance and faith is given in the preaching. Now you think about that, three warnings. So for instance, before the worship service, I get up here, I give a welcome, I give announcements, and then what I say? I say, as you can see, we are celebrating the Lord's Supper here this morning. And I say to you, all you who are members, but I also say to our guests, um, we have access to this table, and as a church, we invite you to this table, given that you embrace these things, and they're evident in your life. Number one, you are a repentant believer in Jesus Christ. In the words of the catechism, are you displeased with yourself, and do you trust in Christ? Are you a repentant believer in Jesus Christ? Secondly, are you seeking to lead a godly life in the language of the catechism? Do you desire to strengthen your faith and amend your life? So we put those two things together. You need to be a repentant believer in Jesus Christ, but you need to live a godly life. Those two always go hand in hand in the Bible, right? Because what good is it to say we have faith, but we're not leading a godly life? What does that really say about our faith? saying it's not really genuine, it's not really authentic. So you need to be a repentant believer in Jesus Christ. You need to be desirous of living a godly life. And then also this, and this is very important. A lot of churches don't bring this out, but we do. We draw a very close connection, but not only between faith and life, between faith in Jesus and his bride, the Bible calls it. Who's the bride of Christ? It's the church. You really can't have Christ over the long haul, and you cannot grow in discipleship and your love for the Lord apart from this place, apart from the church. And that's why we add this third qualification. The third one is this. Are you a member, a professing member in good standing at a Christ-centered, gospel-centered, Protestant church that embraces the fundamental tenets of the Apostles' Creed, which we just confessed earlier, a few moments ago, and also, does the church that you belong to bear the marks of a true church? Namely, faithful preaching of the Word of God, the pure administration of the sacraments, and also the faithful administration of church discipline. Now, you think of all those qualifications. There's a lot. And we make them very clear here. And we say, if you can say yes to these things and you can affirm them, we give you access to the table. We're not saying, if you gather here together as a member or as a guest, we don't say, hey, listen, have you reached the point of moral perfection? Because if you have, well, then please, you have access. I mean, if that was the case, nobody would come forward. So we're not asking, are you perfect? We're asking fundamentally, are you a repentant believer in Jesus Christ? Are you seeking to lead a godly life? And are you a member in good standing, a professing member at the kind of church that I described? And if you are, come to the table. And then we say this, but if you aren't, if you aren't, we are asking at this point that you refrain from coming to the table, and then we go on to say, and if you have any questions about that, we'd love to chat with you about that so that we can get you to the point of becoming a member of a church so that you can have access to the table. Now, why do we say all of this? Is this, again, do we, do we put that fence around the table and do we provide a warning because we're inhospitable or we're just kind of a mean-spirited church? No. No, actually what we're doing is we're being protective. We're being protective of those who hear the warning because we want them to hear the warning, because we want to protect them from coming to the table without a warning and thinking they're okay, even though they may not be in Christ. And we want to protect them ultimately from, as the Bible says, eating and drinking judgment to themselves by partaking of the bread and the wine. On the other hand, 
we're also protective of us. We provide the warning in order to keep us from receiving as a congregation the judgment of God for allowing people to come in who should not. Now, if that seems a little um, uh, strict, why don't you listen to these words from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, if you'll put that up on the screen. Notice what the Apostle Paul writes. He says, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, that is, whoever partakes of the Lord's Supper without the right clothes, and whoever treats the Lord's Supper as just kind of an ordinary meal, they will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Therefore, let a person examine himself and then let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill. Notice this, and some have died. Now that kind of strikes you when you read that. You know, like, okay, so the, if you know anything about the Corinthian church, the people were not getting along together. And there were rubs between the people. And there was infighting between the people and all that kind of thing. And there was sexual immorality in the church. There's actually a case of incest in the church, and people are actually making fun of that. There was drunkenness at the Lord's table because they would combine the Lord's Supper with a general meal, kind of like what we're going to be doing after this. And all these things were going on, and what was happening is that the people were not given a warning, and the people were not truly examining themselves, and what was happening is they were coming forward to partake of the of the bread and the wine as representative of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, and in doing that, in coming to the table without, without having properly prepared themselves and examined themselves, judgment was brought not only upon them, but judgment was brought upon the body of Christ. And so, listen, again, this is why we put a fence around the table. We put a fence around the table, um, not just because God wants us to, but also we do it ultimately, you think about it, we do it because of love. The warning is given out of love for all of us, whether members or non-member guests. Out of love, the warning is given so that we may be prevented from eating and drinking in the wrong way. But here's the thing. When you do eat and when you drink in a proper way, when you come forward as a repentant believer in Jesus Christ and who heed all the aspects of the warning that is given, and you come in faith, and you come in repentance, and you come embracing Christ and entrusting your life to Him, the beautiful thing is, is that God feeds us, God nourishes us, God, in the, in the language of the catechism, strengthens our faith and draws us more fully to Himself and gives us the ability as pilgrims.